0: The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Dom Roberts, a designer, creative, and activist living in Los Angeles. This is the Uncomfortable Podcast, a show where I speak with new friends, fellow activists, and guests all united and passionate about different injustices or just generally uncomfortable topics. It's time to dig deep into the human experience, and that's on period. It's all love. Let's get uncomfortable.
1: I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. To close out this season of Looking Up, I've decided to give you a very special current events type of episode. I'm talking to Jessica Malati Rivera today. She is an infectious disease epidemiologist and the science communicator lead at the COVID Tracking Project. She has dedicated the last 15 years of her career to infectious disease research, public health policy, and vaccine advocacy. Her specialty is in translating complex scientific concepts into impactful, accessible, and judgment-free information for anyone to understand. So you can totally get why she is a very timely and important guest right now. This episode is all about asking her a bunch of COVID-related questions from myself and from you guys regarding vaccines, the treatments, masks, flattening the curve, misguidance, faux pas, good information, not so helpful information, antibodies, herd immunity, variants, and getting some scientific answers. It's important to note that this episode was recorded a couple weeks ago, and while there are even more questions I wish we could address right here and right now, like what her thoughts on how we can help India, which is in a current devastating crisis right now. This episode will not have any of those answers, but you can watch out on my Instagram for a live very soon with her, where you can get more of your questions answered about the pandemic. So how we begin the Looking Up podcast, as many of you guys know, is that we start with a little series that I like to call Looking In. And uh, it's basically just a few rapid fire style questions in which myself and the audience gets to know you a little more intimately, uh, maybe past um, some of the work that you do and what they know you for. So without any too much thought or any judgment of all, just the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. Has there been a book that you have read that has a- actually changed the way in which you live your life? And if so, please do share.
0: Okay. The first book that comes to mind is The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. And I, it's hard to even say exactly how it changed my life, but I think about it often. It's always on my mind. A lot of the segments of poetry and the narrative, I, I just love it so much my next question for you is people think I'm blank, but
1: I'm actually blank.
0: People think I'm tough and that I've got thick skin and I am super sensitive. I love that because I I, I don't know why and
1: I don't know where the like, where or why that, that occurs, whether it's like an online presence or yeah. like whatever, but I can see that. I can mm-hmm. totally see both. I can see both of that. Um, and actually... I think that was something that our common friend, um Sophia, when she was on the podcast, I think she had a very similar answer, yeah, which I thought was really interesting too. and And I think to do the work that both of you do and so many people are doing, and especially in 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 the activism space and and getting the truth out there. I think you have to have both of those, like yeah. sort of this like strength that comes across, but also you wouldn't be doing the work you're doing if you weren't really deeply connected to your feelings and yeah. like very connected to your emotions.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's true.
1: <laughs> okay. So describe yourself as a teenager during your high school years in three words.
0: Oh, three words. God, that's so hard. Um, Probably... <laughs> driven, um, extroverted and, oh gosh, insecure too. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. When is the last time that you cried? Yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Remember it was around like nine 30 in the morning.
1: Yep. And, uh, even though the day is not done, but three things that have brought you joy today.
0: So my kids are about 20 months apart. So they're kind of like Irish twins, not really. Um, And they have now, my daughter has been getting into my son's crib in the morning and they just like talk. And I hear them. Yeah, I hear them from my room. They're just like telling these grand stories about like, sharks and octopuses and, you know, it's like so elaborate. And so that, that started my day off with a lot of joy. I also made some really good coffee that brought me a lot of joy. We invested in like a nicer coffee machine. Cause I'm like, I'm not going to coffee shops anymore, but I'd like to have coffee shop like coffee. Right. Um, So that's the second thing. And the third is this, I, I just love meeting new people and getting a chance to talk about you know, things that are really meaningful to me.
1: I'm so happy to have you on Looking Up right now. And and actually, the silver lining in kind of all of this shifting, uh, the world shifting to sort of at-home work and virtual work is that in the beginning of, well, first of all, my podcast released at the very start of the pandemic, but um, we obviously did not know that while we were preparing for it. And I was all of a sudden able in my mind to interview people from all over and i didn't really have to think about people coming into the studio that i was going to be recording at and so it's been this really nice sort of free like oh hey i could you know as long as timings work i can interview anyone and sit in front of them in an environment or or a time before where i don't think i would have gotten to connect and i've been yeah. wanting to connect with you for so long and i know we've kind of traded dms here and there but being able to see you in person face to face even though it's on a computer, is bringing me a lot of joy uh, this morning, too. I just so I have so many questions for you, like <laughs> everybody. I actually just like very last minute um, threw it out to my community and of course, immediately had tons and tons of questions come in 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 addition to my own. But first and foremost, just, you know, for some people that don't know you, And for some of us that think we know you. Can you tell me a little bit and share with us a little bit about what it is that you do?
0: Yeah, sure. So I am an infectious disease epidemiologist. I've spent 15 years kind of in the space of public health and research, I got my master's degree from Georgetown in Emerging Infectious Diseases, and I actually worked at Georgetown for a number of years doing pandemic surveillance and prediction. So we were basically trying to find the indicators and warnings of what could be the next pandemic. In fact, our team actually identified the emergence of the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. So this has been kind of like my world for a while. People who know me well have always been like, I'm the girl obsessed with infectious diseases (laughs) and like always waiting for the next pandemic. And, you know, there's nothing like clairvoyant about those predictions, right? It's based on evidence, based on a lot of indicators that we can say with confidence uh, that this might happen. And so for me, this was never a surprise. Uh, It was always kind of a matter of when, not if. And since the pandemic has started, I have been working with the COVID Tracking Project, which is housed at the Atlantic. And we have been tracking all of the testing and patient outcome data for all 56 states and jurisdictions. And I have been the science communication lead. And what that means is I basically help translate the data, the complex science, uh, make sure that it's sound to epidemiology and sound to uh, even policy stuff so that it's accessible and judgment free and not manipulated by diverse audiences. I feel really, really passionate about elevating people's science and data literacy. And so I started doing that on social media, kind of on the side. And actually, Sophia was like one of my biggest like encouragers very early on because I did like a live, which I, you know, I had like 900 followers when we did that or something. And it just turned into this whole thing, which I'm so glad. I mean, I mean I've been doing SciComm for a long time, but the fact that I get to do it with this captive audience on Instagram is so, so cool. I absolutely
1: Love your Instagram, and for anyone that doesn't follow you, I absolutely encourage. In fact, I prescribe it. You must because you you really help to debunk certain myths. You help to bring light to the real information that we should all know and make it and make it digestible in a way that we understand. And I think that you share a passion that I share that I can see is that this information and science driven information about one's health and for me obviously it's it's quite focused on mental health but about one's health mental health physical health whatever it is is a human right like we yeah. need to know this and there's no i think people are at the point now where people let's not dumb it down for folks yeah. people people want to know they have a right to know and they can like you guys all of us we can understand this stuff Absolutely. and so we need to be given we need to be given the chance and exposed to the right information And I know like that was actually going to be one of my questions, which was like, did you anticipate COVID-19 happening? And it sounds like it was never a if, it was always a when. And so when things went down and maybe backtrack, when did you kind of, when were you alerted? Like, okay, this is happening. This is real. And when did you start taking it seriously?
0: Yeah, so because of my, you know, experience and time in this very like niche world of science, I'm on a bunch of infectious disease listservs and so I got a notification in December about this kind of pneumonia-like illness that was circulating in Wuhan and it was like the middle of December of 2019. And so I kind of filed it like a, oh, well that's interesting. I immediately went to Twitter and looked up all my colleagues and my former professors to kind of see like what the chatter was about. Everybody was kind of like, this is interesting. I wonder if it'll be like SARS-1. So at that time, a lot of people were doing either one of two things. They were either dismissing it and saying it's nothing or freaking out and panic buying and, you know, mm-hmm. taking up all the N95 masks and and toilet, tra- paper. and toilet paper, paper towels, all the things. And I just remember, you know, kind of trying to calm my friends down and just be like, hey, we're monitoring this. Like, there's no reason to panic, but like, let's, you know, just let's be level-headed about this. It wasn't really though until early March. Mm-hmm. And I, Joshua and I, my husband and I had taken a trip and on the flight back, I looked at Joshua after reading some news when we were in the airport, and I was like, this is about to go down. Like, this is actually happening. And I said, I don't think we're going to be traveling for a long time. It was actually March 8th, 2020, when I said those words to my husband. And sure enough, I think it was like March 11th when we were living at San, in San Francisco at the time that we had our first shutdown.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I I think so many of us can remember what our last sort of either travel or social mm-hmm. engagement or dinner out with friends or play date, like all of us can kind of remember exactly the date where we were. And sort of, I look back and I guess something kind of cool about having an Instagram is that I went on a deep dive the other day and I look back to that time and I remember like posting, you know, just little things and, the, and bringing myself back to the sentiment of like, okay, we're in this, but like not at all even had a measure of thought that we would be in this for a year plus. Mm-hmm um yeah. sort of just and i think like partly psychologically it was better not to know that like we we really were all trying to take each day at a time and i don't know how it would have gone down if someone was like and by the way we know absolutely sure you're going to pretty much be locked down for an entire year or more it would have been a little bit you know and like the fact is that i look back and I guess this is something that I talk a lot about is that all of us being able to look back and, and I mean, we're still in it. It's not, there's, there's no over yeah. yet. And that's what I want to talk to you about. But to look back at least over this past 12 plus months and like see how much resiliency has happened mentally and emotionally and physically for all of us, like some of the stuff we were talking about right before we started you know interviewing um, or or this podcast is you know kind of just the amount of work from home struggles with being a parent, and I look back and i'm like i'm I'm tired. I'm exhausted. This feels hellish. But I'm also like really proud of myself. Yeah, and I've yeah. reached certain limits and surpassed limits that I never ever actually thought I could do. Mm-hmm. And there's so many things that I'm like, I never I, I in the past been like, I can't do this. And they could be as silly as like, this is so silly and sounds so vapid. But I was like, I, I never thought I could do my own eyebrows. or dye my own hair. And it just gives you this like set and and let alone like work full time and be a parent and all those bigger things, you know, and decide what's for dinner every single night and lunch and breakfast and be a chef and be, you know, all these things. But like, you know, just simply like I dyed my own hair in my backyard or I do my own eyebrows, which sounds crazy. Or literally, I just, I don't, it will never matter to me again if I ever get my nails done. I don't care. Yeah, um, yeah. But there's certain things you realize you care about. Like you got a brand new, really cool coffee machine because that's something you care about. And now you can do it yourself or mm-hmm. certain things that just are out the window that I spent so much time and energy and money on that, I will just probably not like maybe once in a while, but I'll, it'll never be part of my like, you know, daily or weekly or even bi-weekly thought in my brain again.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have, I've always loved cooking and I've always mostly disliked baking. Um, just because I, the freedom of cooking is always interesting to me how you can kind of whip it up and change it and make it, you know, your own thing. And there's so much precision in baking, yes. but because I was, I fell into the whole, you know, cliche sourdough thing that happened, but it was so healing for me because were it required, you in the banana bread thing too? No, I hate bananas, <laughs> so I can't do that. <laughs> it's like one okay. I wish I could because my sis, my kids love bananas, but I just can't even tolerate them. I so, feel like we went through that like sourdough,
1: banana bread, tie dye, whatever that like coffee thing was. Oh yes, some the whipped
0: kind of yes, the whip thing, whipped thing. Yeah, whipped, yep, yeah, we did it, all the things, and I, yeah. those those kind of like silly moments and also like very careful moments were good for my mental health, honestly, Mm -hmm. because it was like uniting to people who I don't know. I followed all like 10 different bakers on Instagram after doing that. And, you know, I, it was really lovely to like force myself to do something that I probably would have never done. And I learned a new skill. Like I learned all about the fermentation process for sourdough, which is like incredibly scientific and nerdy. And it, it was, yeah, I mean, there's so many silver linings to this. It's it's been incredibly difficult, but it's not all, it's not all lost on me that we learned a lot too. Absolutely.
1: Okay. So even though you weren't necessarily surprised mm-hmm. that a pandemic happened slash is happening, what are one or two things throughout this, being the expert that you are, that have actually surprised you? Whether it was, and it can be anything that really has shocked you, whether it was like, how we're dealing with it, the actual pandemic, the way that the virus, it like whatever, like some, tell me something that has actually shocked you or surprised you yeah. through this. There's
0: a few things quickly come to mind because I've just thought about this so much. One, the virus SARS-CoV-2 is a cruel virus. The fact that it continues to cause so many kind of confusing things with regard to long COVID and which is now referred to as PASC. And, you know, seeing complications from asymptomatic infections to latent issues with the heart. I mean, it's just a cruel, cruel virus and nothing about the way we've characterized it has been hyperbolic at all. If anything, it's been probably downplayed too much by many people. The other thing that comes to mind is, you know, when we say, I wish we knew maybe or maybe didn't know, I wish we didn't know that it would be like a whole year. It's so hard to not look at it from like a data perspective perspective. And say, God, this really did not have to be like this. Like if we had really just focused on testing early on to identify the number of people who had it and and kind of do what other countries successfully did, which is to identify those people, isolate those people, make sure that they don't get other people sick. The fact that we lost... Months of time for this virus to just become so widespread. I mean, it set us up for the failure that this was. It set us up for this and wild so many lives. So many lives. And the fact that the data looks like a roller coaster is precisely because this we had this knee-jerk reaction to everything. We resisted, then we got too comfortable, then we got too strict, then we got too lazy. And it just, it, it just didn't have to be like this. And I think I'm kind of connected to that, which is one of the hardest. Truths and things that I've learned is that, like, while there are so many good people who have adopted many of these public health practices, I'm just constantly shocked that there's a decent amount of people who have to really be convinced to care about others mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and have to really be convinced that things like mask wearing and vaccines are really altruistic things that are intended to care for people who are less fortunate than us and who need our support and who can't do these things because of other issues. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing to me how hard of a lesson that is for some folks.
1: What was your initial reaction when all of this sort of went down and i know like when you said to your husband like i don't think we'll travel for a while did you kind of have a feeling that this was going to be as big and serious and severe as it has been or i guess part of that maybe is looking in retrospect and seeing all the ways that it could have been different and that's yeah. that's actually really horrifying or did you think in the beginning like okay this is this is happening. This seems real, but like maybe had some optimism of how it would have been dealt with because of past situations in other countries or.
0: Yeah. I mean, I was following the global data very closely. And to be quite honest, like after my husband and I had that conversation and we had actually decided to, you know, temporarily move in with my in laws because we were in this very tiny apartment in San Francisco and I knew that we were going to be home for a while. I was following the data in Italy in particular with with a broken heart and, and, and knowing that like with as much opposition as they were seeing with folks kind of not following guidelines and, you know, seeing what was happening in the hospitals, like the concept of flatten the curve, you know, needed to be one of the first lessons, but for some reason, it just wasn't fully making sense to a lot of people that like, even if you aren't in the hospital, when our hospitals aren't doing well, it's a really dangerous situation for the whole country. And once I started seeing the kind of infrastructure fracturing and, and near collapse in a lot of places, that was like you know in the spring of last year, like March to May, it was so dark. And you know, it was also around the time when weather was getting nicer in the U.S. And I just I just saw it in my, happening and before my eyes. I'm like, people are gonna, they're not just gonna want to do whatever they want to do. They're gonna want to be outside without masks and you know, as a science communicator, I look back and recognize that there were a lot of missteps in communication from the federal government and even from other uh, kind of talking heads that caused a lot of distrust and confusion, which meant people like myself had to do a lot of damage control. But it was very early on that like this looked really bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And
1: now that we've we've been in this for 12 plus months, can you tell us a little bit I'm sure we still don't know everything, but can you give us a a sort of rundown of what we do know about COVID-19?
0: Yeah, so, you know, in many ways, we've confirmed a lot of the things that we've known about the virus. And in many ways, we're still learning about this virus. So primarily, um, this is a respiratory virus, but it's also a vascular virus in that it affects, you know, your lungs, your respiratory system. It also affects your heart and your blood and uh, your, you know, circulation. Like all these things kind of are factors in acute COVID infection. We unfortunately don't have a perfect anecdote for this yet, despite what many, you know, snake oil salespeople might say, might say online, there is not a, you know, proven remedy yet. We do have a decent amount of uh, available medications and treatments that have only gotten better since COVID emerged. So, you know, there's some dexamethasone, some people respond really well to remdesivir Um, there's monoclonal antibodies, which are effective if you offer them really early But they're doing a ton of research to find more. Now, while there hasn't been this silver bullet for treatment, I will say the fact that we now have three very safe and effective vaccines that far exceeded our expectations for efficacy is the kind of surprise that I would have never expected about Mm. this whole process. Like we were shooting for 50% efficacy when these trials were being designed, kind of similar to the flu vaccine. And that is something that I, I promise you, if you had told me that a year ago, I'd been like, no way, especially not on the first try. There's just no way. So that makes me feel like very confident that we are outsmarting this virus and that we are, you know, going to get over this. That said, you know, viruses mutate, mutations are totally normal. They mutate as they replicate. The fact that we are seeing variants is not a surprise. The fact that we're seeing variants in multiple places that have high transmission is also not a surprise. But what is very important for people to understand is that while this virus is not turning into something unrecognizable, it's all the more reason to be doing what we've been saying. Like the narrative hasn't changed that much, right? So like what we know about COVID is that it's spread through respiratory droplets through close contact. That's still the case. Mm-hmm. The reason why we're saying, you know, wear double masks or wear like a really good respirator is because we just want to make sure that you have good coverage. So it's, it's kind of just a lot of the same with a lot more detail.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And this whole idea of variance, and I know this is like a a really big deal to a lot of people right now, as it should be. But I think like the part that I'm learning about it is that it's not even necessarily the fact that there are variants because that's normal. These These things mutate, there will be variants. It's the fact that if we continue to allow the transmission to be so big and so many people to get it, then we are in turn actually enabling the variants.
0: Absolutely. That's that's a great way to right? say it. Yes.
1: Okay. So the yeah.
0: more at this
1: point, our sort of defense is the more arms we can get vaccines into, the less likelihood that we're going to transmit, which then means the less likelihood that there will be variants.
0: Yeah. I mean, you think about it this way, a virus needs a host to replicate. So a virus can't grow, change, mutate unless it's in a person, right? By getting vaccinated, we effectively make ourselves kind of like blocked to that. We are trying to create dead ends for the virus. By doing that, we're saying there's not going to be another host for replication, which will slow down two things. It'll slow down the spread of those variants. It'll also sl- slow down the actual process of that virus mutating.
1: Okay. And so now that we're talking about vaccines, we have to jump right in because that is literally most of yeah. the questions I got to ask you are pretty much all about the vaccine's and when you were sort of talking about uh, that one thing that actually has surprised you is that we have this very 98%, plus percent, 90, 90 plus percent mm-hmm. in efficacy, these vaccines, which is like we go and put flu shots in our arms every year or some of us do. And that only has a 50%. And that's like very surprising and actually so optimistic is actually, it actually like gave me chills because Mm -hmm. I just like science is so incredible. And that, and I wonder if you're actually surprised at how quickly we got there as well. And not only do we have one, but we actually have three. So within all that and and about the vaccines, again, in the most simplest of terms, can you share with us what these three vaccines are, Mm -hmm. how they work, how they're different. And of course, everyone's question is, which one should I get, which I, I know, you know, uh, you should get the one that is that is available to you. Mm-hmm. But um, if there's any insight we have now, that's the two vaccines that have been around, I guess, the longest, which isn't that long, but Moderna and Pfizer. And I know the Johnson & Johnson one is is newer, but mm-hmm. have we learned anything? good bad whatever about them now that we have a lot more people that they're in yeah since. yeah
0: so i mean to answer your first question i'm not surprised by how fast we got there for a few reasons so we kind of are working based on decades of research at least at least for the mrna vaccines you know people have been studying mrna and mrna vaccines for a lot of years and they've actually been in human trials for several years we've tried it for sars and for flu and for other diseases And none of those situations were as emergent as COVID-19. So it's kind of like a runway that was paved. And then we got to like hit the ground running. And I'm just going to shout out Dr. Kizmekia Corbett, who was behind the incredible research at NIH to develop the mRNA vaccine, which they were able to do in almost 48 hours. And in that 48, between 48 hours of developing kind of the prototype for that vaccine, it was less than two months later where the first person was actually vaccinated. So a lot of people are like, we don't have long-term data the first person who was dosed with this vaccine was March 16th, 2020. So think about that. It's been over a year. Wow. I I did not know that. Yeah. So it's pretty remarkable. And, you know, just to kind of give some basic, basic explanation Mm -hmm. of how these vaccines work. So the mRNA vaccines are essentially the mRNA, which provides the specific description and and blueprint essentially for the spike protein, that very famous spike that's on the outside Mm -hmm. of the virus. It's telling your body this is what the spike protein looks like, make this spike protein. And then your body has an immune response to that because that's a foreign thing. The spike protein, mm-hmm. right? mRNA is just the messenger. The vaccine and the mRNA in the vaccine doesn't last in your body very long, maybe a few hours, maybe a couple of days. It degrades shortly after what's long-term. What remains is your immune response and your immune response has memory. And it says, I've seen this before. I'm going to fight it. And it creates these antibodies, these T cells and B cells that are like, if this comes back again, I'm going to fight it. Now, interestingly, the mRNA vaccine is a two dose vaccine. And that's exactly what happens. That first dose is kind of like the quiz. Mm -hmm. And the second dose is like the final exam. Mm -hmm. So it kind of shows you, you've seen this before, you know what to do. You know, all the answers, you know exactly how to recognize this and fight it. And it's a really, really effective tool to training your body without providing any live virus. So the right. virus, the vaccine can't get you sick. It can't cause COVID-19. It can't cause you to shed COVID-19 because there's no virus in it at all. It's incredibly safe. It doesn't even enter our nucleus, which is where the DNA is. It's just honestly changing the game for vaccine research. I think we're going to see a lot more MRNA vaccines. And I want, I think I'll be talking about MRNA vaccines for a lot longer because there is a lot of kind of confusion about genetic material and people often yes. think that it's more sinister than it is. Everything from genetic genetically modified food, which is not as sinister as people think it is, to something like this which has nothing to do with genetically modifying your body, you know? So, that's the mRNA vaccine. Johnson and Johnson is different and it's called an adenovirus vector vaccine, which means that they use an adenovirus. It's a very kind of common virus that causes a common cold, but it's weakened. So it can't actually replicate or make you sick. And a vector means basically something that carries something else. It's like a Mm -hmm. means to transport. And Mm -hmm. that virus is transporting the genetic material of the, of the virus to say, Hey, this effectively to the same result, make this identify this fight this. And it was actually a very successful mechanism for the Ebola vaccine, which Johnson & Johnson also produced. And it's been very, very um, helpful to combat and prevent uh, outbreaks in sub-Saharan Africa. So all three do the main thing of all vaccines. I like to remind people like the main goal of all vaccines is to keep you out of the hospital and to keep you alive. When we talk about vaccine preventable deaths, that's exactly it. This vaccine is going to prevent you from dying. This vaccine is going to prevent you from getting so sick that you have to be hospitalized. And it's now based on real data that we have that came from Israel first. And now we have it with our own data that the CDC released yesterday or maybe two days ago saying that you're 90% less likely to transmit the virus after the vaccine because your viral load, which is essentially like the amount of virus you have in your body is so dramatically reduced by the vaccine that you're, you're way less likely to get sick. And, and also you're way less likely to get others sick. And that is just, again, it like gives me chills. I get choked up thinking about this because I think one of the very easiest cheap shots at the vaccine was, it doesn't even prevent transmission. What's the point? It does. The, the, the vaccine trials were intended to measure the two most important things, like I mentioned, hospitalization and death. We needed real-time data, which is in the world, right, to get the other benefits of the vaccine. And now we have them.
1: That is something that gives me a lot of solace right now too, because obviously two kids, young, three and a half, five months, they obviously are not eligible to be vaccinated and probably not eligible for a little while or a long while. I don't know what, I did see that they started testing on kids in in the studies, but either way, you know, we have a lot of family members now that are thankfully vaccinated. And so I, I worry sometimes with, that's great. Like I've seen the CDC recommend and say it's okay to spend time mm-hmm. um unmasked around other vaccinated people indoors you know with with your family members and stuff that are vaccinated but i always stopped and wondered these people that are my family coming over maybe like my kids aren't vaccinated and so mm-hmm. that has been something and and starting school and all those things we you know we didn't do any of that um my Three and a half year old is supposed to start preschool this past year, and even though you know some of the schools remained open, the, the private preschools and and some people were still going. We we were not. I was actually pretty high risk, or told that I was due to a predisposition to blood clotting and some other stuff. So we were like so in. So I think like that new data is exactly what. I want people to know about, and even for yeah. myself, I knew that it was kind of like talked about, but I didn't realize that just a couple of days ago it was it was made sort of valid and real yeah. that the transmission rates are now low as well, very mm-hmm. low, and very that low. is very exciting.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It is the breakthrough that we needed in vaccine, edu- like comms, and even just the vaccine. Efficacy data because there's, you know, in the clinical trials, we're measure, measuring efficacy, which means they're very controlled environments. In the real world, we're measuring right. effectiveness, and the effectiveness is incredible. It's preventing sickness, it's preventing transmission, it's preventing hospitalization, it's preventing death. That is, those are all the things that we were hoping for.
1: Absolutely. Okay. So, why does the CDC still recommend that fully vaccinated people, uh, if they travel, why do they still have to quarantine?
0: Okay. So the CDC actually discourages non-essential travel as of right now. And that's for a few reasons. One of them is the variance, you know, obviously. Yeah. You know, and top of the fact that, you know, when I'm using my words very carefully here and saying like reduced risk, it's not eliminated risk. Right. So these 90% is not a hundred percent. Right. 80% is not a hundred percent. So because there is this window, uh, marginal error, potentially not error, but like a possibility for you to still have an infection post vaccination and the variance, Could potentially present other complicating factors to that. They're saying we need to make sure that most people are vaccinated before we can do things that have been considered high risk, like travel. So there's a lot of assumptions made when you travel, right? There's an assumption of your own health and your own risk. And there's also the assumptions of your, of the outside, the plate, the destinations risk and health there too. And I want to encourage people to think about one, the privilege of that too, you know, like if I leave here because I've been fully vaccinated and I have great health care and there's no strain in my community, am I thinking about all those things, vaccine equity, healthcare care infrastructure, public health in general and access to public health to the place that I'm going now? It's not as much of a deal domestically, but even still, each state is having their own thing. Like Michigan's really struggling right now. A lot of states in the Northeast are struggling right now. And I think that we need to be thinking about this. One of the main reasons why we failed so hard is because we didn't think about this in a united way. We had 56 different responses to this pandemic and 56 different outcomes, these 50 states and the six territories. And I think that it's really telling that when we are not united and thinking about how connected we are with our health, that acting out of your own privilege and acting out of your own risk assessment is very selfish.
1: Absolutely. And that kind of goes back to that surprising, something that kind of shocked you, you talked about with like not being community-focused or driven yeah. and being much more self. Like, what is exactly... What's my situation, you know, particularly and not necessarily? How is my situation, regardless of what it is, going to impact the greater whole? So I got a question from someone that was like really specific. And I think it obviously is a very, very specific situation that is kind of a more privileged situation where, where she asked that you know her whole house is vaccinated meaning the adults mm-hmm. and there is a grandma that has not seen her you know grandchildren in actually more than 2 years she said because they didn't they didn't get to see them that year before this was supposed to be the year that that she traveled in she's vaccinated now if she's coming on a plane to this household, does she need to quarantine or can she see her grandkids straight away? And they don't leave, as she says, we've been, you know, everyone's vaccinated, but we're still, you know, the only thing we're doing differently right now is double masking. So they're being really careful, she says.
0: That is, uh, it's so difficult to answer these questions with precision, right? Because there's so many variables. You know, I feel like- Wait, before you
1: answer, maybe is the risk the plane?
0: Because the risk is travel and the risk is also potentially what the circumstances are for the kids. So I will say, because my kids like yours have been, you know, because of my own choice, not in preschool this whole year, the risk of my kids having COVID and transmitting it to their grandparents is extremely low because they're not in pre-K. They're not walking around. They're not hanging out with a bunch of other kids. If your kids are in school and having a ton of interaction with other families, that's a different assessment right. that you have to have. But if you're talking about a fully vaccinated household where the adults are vaccinated, the kids have low exposure to others who might be infected, and you're talking about a vaccinated person traveling mm-hmm. to see them. If you wanted to be just abundantly cautioned, you could do a quarantine and then potentially test five to seven days later. However, I'm inclined to say that it's probably. Okay, you know, and and again, I don't like to answer very specific questions like this because, again, I can't know all the circumstances and the variables, right? I don't know like what their exposure was like before they got on the airplane or what the airport was even like or who picked them up. Did they take an Uber? Like, there's so many things that I'm like, each point of contact with the person needs to be its own risk assessment. Absolutely. So, um, I I feel much more uh, kind of precise and comfortable saying as many variables as you can eliminate, especially when it comes to movement, the better.
1: Okay. And which brings me to another question of, because we've heard this not, and we're going to get right back into the vaccine stuff, but it brings me to another question about masks. So I feel like we have had a just a whole ton of confusing information, information from the start of wear a mask, don't wear a mask. The mask helps. It doesn't really help. The mask is bad for you. The mask is good for you. The mask is only good for others and not good for you. The mask is good for you. Like just tons of stuff. Wear a yeah. mask, don't wear wear a double mask how effective is let's leave, let's have that example again of cuz it's an enclosed environment like a plane how effective or safe are you if you're double masked in a plane
0: That's, again, that's not a quantifiable answer that I can provide, but I also want to clarify the fact that the vacillation on mask messaging was really just once from the science community, and it was really kind of from the outside lay community, uh, often by bad actors who were dispelling, who were spreading kind of misinformation about that stuff. The initial recommendation was kind of preempting what we talked about earlier, which was people's response to emergencies, which is to panic buy. The intention was- Please don't take supplies, PPE supplies, from the actual intended people who need them, specifically N95 masks. And initially, there were some missteps made by the Surgeon General and the CDC by saying you don't need to wear masks. But that that flip-flop was really just once. Ever since that change, which was in March of last year, and recommendations for masking were becoming more universal... That has been consistent. We have found increasing data to show that it does protect the wearer and the person who is around that person. And I think that that message has only been reinforced by data and science. Now that said, the idea behind double masking, the idea behind potentially wearing a KN95 and, and, or a face shield was to ensure that you just had the best coverage. All of us kind of have this muscle memory of like grabbing a mask and throwing it on your face, but like even myself. We've gotten a little lazy sometimes like, oh, I haven't washed this in a few days. It's probably fine. Or I haven't Mm -hmm. replaced the filter. It's probably fine. This one's made of this like cute silky material because it matches my outfit. It's probably fine. When really like the whole point is proper fit and proper filtration. So double masking was to intend to, to encourage both of those things. Make sure that it has a tight seal over your nose bridge. Make sure that there aren't gaping holes on the side. Make sure that the filtration is several, you know, multiple layers of a very good material so that you're not kind of just putting something on your face without any protection. Um, that's really kind of the, the methodology there.
1: So is the safest that we know of right now, double mask or, or obviously like, and is that, I, I think I've seen like maybe one of those like medical hospital masks and then a cloth mask over it and then a shield.
0: So two great scenarios are a surgical mask with a cloth mask on top, plus a shield. Mm -hmm. or a KN95 plus a shield if you wanted like maximum coverage. Um, Again, the purpose of the shield is to protect only the wearer right? It's not to protect others because this is just to to eliminate the very, very low risk of potentially getting the virus via eyes. I don't feel very compelled to wear face shields unless I'm in very high risk situations and I haven't really been in high risk situations. Right. So if you're on a plane, maybe, but when you're just walking about, I don't think it's necessary to be walking around with a face shield.
1: And for kids, is it also recommended to do the double mask?
0: No, no. Okay. Kids can be fine with a single mask, surgical or cloth, whatever is comfortable for the kid.
1: Okay. Back to vaccines. I have obviously... um, I feel like I, I can be kind of skewed. I'm definitely in the science sort of world. It's more what I gravitate towards. So some of these questions, I feel pretty confident in knowing the answers to myself, but I want to make sure that people out there are really hearing this because I'm also being in sort of right in the middle of holistic and evidence-based science. Uh, The people that I follow, let's say on social media, I get a lot of information or or I'm exposed to a lot of things that are anti-vax and anti, particularly COVID vaccine. And so I, just me myself, I'm seeing a lot of that, and it's confusing. Even though when I sit and think about it, I kind of I know where I stand, but I can just imagine how confused yeah. people are right now. And can you sort of help dispel maybe what you consider one to two to three of the biggest myths about the vaccines and why you think? some of the people that are talking about these very scary things, like where they're getting their information from or where it could even have come from?
0: Yeah. So I'll start by saying that there is a science to science communication, right? It's knowing which myths to spend the time debunking. It's knowing which ones are like so outrageous that you can you know, dismiss it or laugh about it or just ignore it. Um, That said, there's also a, a method to how I do it in the sense that People are always like, oh my gosh, you've answered this so many times. And I'm like, right. And sometimes it's the 11th time for that one person to understand that when I say that it doesn't enter your nucleus, therefore it can't change your DNA. It took that to make it clear. You know, I posted a video the other day that talked about kind of the fallacy of comparing efficacy and saying you cannot at face value compare 66% efficacy from Johnson & Johnson to 90% efficacy from the mRNA vaccines because you're talking about different contexts. They were, you know, they were in different geographical areas. They were happening during variants and like all these kind of, but to visualize it kind of helped make it make sense for a lot of people. So that said to backtrack a little bit science communication requires a lot of patience. It requires a lot of empathy and it requires a lot of repetition. And so that's why I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing and even repeating some of the truths to debunk the mistruths um, for quite a while. And I would say the one right now that I think is so sinister and baseless, but also just persistent is the claims that the vaccine could impact fertility. I mean, to be completely frank, it's it's based on a very flawed understanding of science. You know, it started from an online forum that was basically trying to compare, you know, if you remember from basic biology, amino acids are like the building blocks of proteins. Mm-hmm. And sometimes amino acid sequences can be similar to other things. It's just very normal to have a section that looks similar to something else. They made the leap that if, because this amino acid sequence in the coronavirus spike protein is X. And it looks like a similar sequence in placenta proteins that if your body saw one or the other, it would attack it. So if it attacked the spike protein, it may attack the placenta protein, thereby affecting fertility. Now there's two, well, maybe three huge leaps here. One, the placenta is not formed in the first trimester or at least in the several, the first several weeks. So if we're talking about fertility, we're talking about the ability to conceive, the ability for the, the you know, it for, to have attachment. Like there are a lot of things that have to happen prior to this placental development, That are in the realm of fertility. That, and there's no evidence of this, right? So they did animal models to measure things like fertility, and there was no negative impact on the animals that were tested. There have been also no reports of people experiencing prolonged fertility as a direct result of vaccination. In fact, if you look back at the studies, in every single one of the studies, people got pregnant. They were advised not to. People got pregnant with the Moderna trial, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson. And if you look even closer at that data, all of the negative outcomes in those trials among the pregnant people happened in the placebo groups, not in the Mm. vaccine arms. So there's just a lot of evidence to show that, one, there isn't evidence of the claim, and actually there's evidence of the opposite, not to mention the fact that the CDC issued data not too long ago about 30,000 pregnant people having positive outcomes. Um post vaccination that did not cause you miscarriage. know miscarriage, it did not cause infertility, it did not cause complications. What we do know, and this is what really kind of kills me about this fallacy, is that being pregnant is considered high risk for covid nineteen. You are at a greater risk of having a severe outcome if you get the virus. The risks of the vaccine are so theoretical and not proven in evidence, and it's amazing to me that why would you want to even put yourself as the person and your baby in that kind of risk when we know that you actually are much more likely to have a negative outcome. I I feel like it's people are so quick to jump to theoretical risks over actual confirmed risk. and, And it's amazing to me. I would say another persistent and problematic uh, mistruth is that this is not a vaccine, that it's somehow gene therapy, that it's genetic modification. And again, like I mentioned to you, you know, these mRNA is in our bodies at all times. Like mRNA is not a foreign substance. mRNA transcribes and translates. It delivers messages to our body. These vaccines don't stay in our body very long. So these claims of long-term unknown effects that could cause cancer or autoimmune Mm -hmm. issues, it's all based on a flawed understanding again, of what mRNA actually does and how these vaccines actually work in our body. They don't interact with our DNA. They're not changing our DNA. It's scientifically impossible for that to happen. You got to think about it kind of in very, very simple terms, like a Snapchat message. Mm -hmm. It kind of, you see, you, you see the picture, it tells you what it looks like, gives you all the instructions, and then it's gone degrades. The only thing that remains is a trained immune response, that will help you if you get to see it again.
1: So with that, one of my biggest questions, and I don't even know if there's an answer to it yet, but I'm, I'm hoping you have some light on it. That immunity, do we know how long that lasts? Do we have any yeah. idea?
0: Great question. So we expect it to be long, right? The, the CEO of the Moderna company had mentioned prior to the variants being a, a persistent issue that they expect the duration to be about two years. The variants, of course, complicate that. Now, we only, we, we you know, this from the scientific process and the ethics behind science. We cannot make claims outside of what's been published in peer-reviewed data. What we have right now is that it is protected for at least three months. That does not mean that the vaccine only works for three months. I get DMs literally every day. I heard the vaccine only works for 90 days. No, they're literally just in the process of publishing the next series of incremental data. We will find the duration based on incremental data as it becomes available and published. We anticipate it will probably be at least a year. And if this becomes an annual vaccine until this disease potentially may become endemic, then that's not a bad situation. That's not a bad outcome. H1N1 evolved that way. H1N1 now is a circulating virus that we have now not become so disrupted by because of vaccines and because of people kind of, getting stronger as a result. So I wouldn't be surprised if in the next several months, we get more and more data to show kind of the durability of it. There has been data recently published that shows that when you compare vaccination antibody responses to natural infection, vaccination Mm -hmm. far outweighs it. It has those stronger, more durable, more long lasting antibody and T cells. And so that again, should be very encouraging that you're much more likely to have a variable response if you've been infected compared to if you've been vaccinated.
1: Okay. So, and I think I'm so I'm so glad to hear your explanation on that because I think it's confusing since this is, again, how scientific communication gets totally tangled up and misunderstood yeah. and then shouted out from the rooftops and, and goes, you know, figuratively, literally viral. <laughs> but <sighs> this idea that we saw, you know, um, I think in some of the CDC recommendations, like if like blah, 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 if you've been vaccinated within the last 90 days. And so I think like someone will take that and say, oh, well, if it's been more than 90 days or some people are starting to get there, if they were one of the first ones to get vaccinated, that maybe they're no longer immune, et cetera. And so the communication to get across is that actually that's science doing its job by not making claims yet about things that are not peer reviewed and we are going to change that information it's evolving and no one really feels that the immunity lasts for 90 days it's it's yes. most likely much longer that's just all we can say right now is what they're saying Well
0: and and remember too like you know the first person who got the vaccine was on March 16th 2020 these trials aren't over they're two year plus trials where they're going to be measuring kind of the long-term impact of the, of the immune response. And so we have the people who have had been, who've been vaccinated for over a year and they're getting the, that data. They want, they're going to publish that data. So it's not for a lack of um, kind of available data. It's just that we are making sure that we're doing it in the most responsible way, publishing it, making sure that it's peer reviewed and then sharing it with everybody else. Now, when we talk about things like how are we going to make decisions like long-term based on vaccine immunity? I think mm-hmm. what is again, misconstrued by things like previous infection, because people are still pushing that like, yes. I've, I've been vaccinated like, right. or I've been, I've been infected. Do I need to get vaccinated? When the CDC said it's unlikely to get reinfected within the 90 days of your first infection, remember the context, it was also pre variants, right? Yes. So now the, the variance, again, when somebody gets reinfected, what is happening is they're essentially getting infected with a slightly different version of the virus most often. And that's exactly what a variant is. So, so the infe- you- the actual
1: infection that someone, because I'm i hearing this all the time from people that are eligible, they're saying, I'm not getting vaccinated because I've already had COVID and I have antibodies, which I have a few questions about. So first, are, are you saying that the antibodies that they have, so if you're If you've contracted COVID, are your antibodies less likely to protect you from the variants than if someone that was vaccinated with the vaccine that they already anticipated that there would be variants? And so we know that some of the vaccine does protect us from some of the variants whereas the actual infection, we don't know if that that actually protects you from variants.
0: Right. So we know that from the data based on these vaccine trials and based on in vitro data and based on some of the data that we've been seeing from other countries, that the vaccines all have protective ability against the variants. We don't know that necessarily from natural infection because again, natural infection immunity varies so Mm -hmm. much. Some people have strong antibody responses. Some people have very weak antibody responses. Some people have ones that fade. And some people have ones that are durable. Like it's not as consistent as vaccination. And it also hasn't been challenged in this context with variants. Reinfection is something that unfortunately is not something we're tracking as well as we should, because what's required in understanding reinfection is also genomic surveillance. So Mm. we as a country are doing very badly in genomic surveillance. We are ranked, I think, 43rd in the world with the amount of samples that are collected from tests to be analyzed. Can you explain to everyone what genomic? um, So genomic surveillance is basically finding out kind of like the blueprint of that virus. So if you get tested for COVID and I get tested for COVID and we both test positive, the next layer of analysis would be to do genomic surveillance. Mm -hmm. And they'll get like the basic genomic code of the one that infected you and the one that affected me. If they're similar, we can probably deduce that we got the same virus. Maybe we even got infected from the same source Mm -hmm. if they're slightly different that is indicating to us that the virus is changing that there are differences between our viruses and that's how we can kind of you, you can think about genomic surveillance as like investigative work on the virus and it's like creating a family tree like which how did it change which one was the offshoot where did it offshoot and that's how they know This variant was first identified in X country. This one was first identified here because that's where they started to see it more prevalent. So we have a lot more work to do in the testing and genomic surveillance space to really understand the scope of these variants, which is exactly why we're telling people, even if you've been infected, get vaccinated. Even if you've been vaccinated, wear a mask because we need to outpace the variants with the vaccines. So people
1: that have been infected, it is absolutely been proven now, correct me if I'm wrong, that you can become reinfected, first of all. You can get COVID twice.
0: Reinfection is possible. It's rare, but it's possible. Okay. And
1: the antibodies, is it, is you can get an antibody test to find out if you have antibodies? Is that something that's measurable, like how much load antibody sort of? protection you have? Or is it just sort of a, yes, there's something there and no, there's not. And we don't actually know if it's weak or if it's strong or whatever it is.
0: Yeah. So most antibody tests I have found to be not that informative, right? And you can think about them as like a rear view mirror. They tell you about something in the past. They don't really tell you about anything for the future. Mm -hmm. Um, And most antibody tests are very simple and saying IgG or IgM was detected. If you really want a full understanding of your amount of antibodies and your amount of T-cells and B-cells, you'd want to do like a full blood panel to get your titers tested that's and you can do that with like any infectious disease in fact if you know you because you've been pregnant they probably tested your titers for MMR mm-hmm. because they wanted to make sure that you are still protected against measles mumps and rubella yeah I actually had a situation where one of mine had faded but because it's a live virus I had to get vaccinated like hours after my first child was born like revaccinated so all that to say like you would get a much more uh, kind of detailed information from a titers test than you would from like a blood drop antibody test, which just tells you, yes, no IgG or IgM. Okay. And, and are
1: all vaccines that we currently have today that are being used safe?
0: All the vaccines that are available to you right now from emergency use authorization are safe and effective. There have been no shortcuts made every single one of the safety Regulations and requirements was met. The real only difference is the in volume of people that they are basing it on. This is based on tens of thousands of people, and it's based on two month data. To get formal approval, they're going to need even more, and based on six month data. But every single kind of dot, dotted I and cross T that was necessary was fulfilled. I, I see a lot of rhetoric or people claiming that they have family
1: members or friends or people that they know that have died from the vaccine.
0: What do you say about that? So there have, to date, there have been no confirmed deaths because of the vaccines. In fact, every post-vaccination death is investigated immediately by the CDC, by the FDA. That, that is all published. VARES is a helpful and incredibly unhelpful resource. It's all self-reported. There's no way to kind of determine based on, you know, just a layperson's view of what's true and what's not. But if there is a death, it is investigated.
1: Will COVID nineteen or can COVID nineteen go away?
0: It will go away eventually. You know, at least the pandemic will. the The virus and the disease may persist in a much less disruptive way, but this emergency that we're in will not be forever.
1: So, when that occurs, will we start to see a life? Um, of course, so much will have changed. There is no going back, like emotionally and in some ways. And I'm mm-hmm. not referring to that, but will we? Live a life that looks a lot more like pre 2020?
0: I think in some ways we're going to go back to many things pre 2020. I think, you know, it, looking back historically on kind of the long term impact of, say, even the 1918 flu, hand hygiene became like a much more regular thing because of that experience. And I think one of the takeaways from this pandemic is that now mask wearing for many people has been normalized. I know for me, Masks aren't going anywhere for a while in the sense that like when it's flu season and if I have to travel, if I've got a tickle in my throat, I'm bringing a mask. And I think that sort of adoption of public health behavior is a really good thing to come out of this. Absolutely.
1: That was something that I definitely can see lasting. And I don't know if I, I don't know when I'll feel comfortable sort of not, well, first of all, at this point, exactly, I don't even know when I'm going to feel comfortable eating indoors. (laughs) I don't know. I'm just getting like I'm just starting to open very recently to the idea of, you know, eating outdoors and yeah. being being far away. But I don't know when I'm going to there's like a few things on my own list that are like, I don't I don't know when I'll be comfortable with that. And and honestly, one of them is actually plane travel. But I was always someone that um in general I was kind of anxious with plane travel. And my husband would laugh at me because he he was like, You're the only person sanitizing like your plain seat. And now I feel like so I'm not gonna be the weird one that everyone's <laughs> looking at. People are gonna ask me for a wipe for themselves. Yep. But yeah. Um so with all of this apprehension that's going on, I, I know for some people the vaccines coming out is truly you know, something that is a source of optimism and something that is like they can't wait for once they're eligible. And I think that's a whole nother thing where, you know, depending where you are, you know, your eligibility might be sooner than, than others. And, and I'd love to hear actually your thoughts on, you know, I'm in LA. I'm in, uh, so it's, I know it's a different experience than, than mm-hmm. from other places, but it seems like the rollout has been slow. Um, mm-hmm. in many ways. But then also when you start looking at the numbers, it also seems like they're starting to really ramp that up right now. Mm-hmm. I guess first question is, how do you think the vaccine rollout has been going and what can be done differently or should be done differently in order to get that going a little bit more? Or Are you quite happy with how it's going?
0: Uh, happy would be an overstatement. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, I think, look, like the vaccine process and Operation Warp Speed, while terribly named, um, was able to get us to this place really fast. There were a couple of things that we did not consider in what we call the last mile. And the last mile is getting those actual vaccines from the manufacturing locations to sites, to vials, to trained personnel who can administer them. Like the phrase vaccines save lives is sort of flawed in the sense that, well, it's actually vaccinations that save lives. And we need to go from these vaccines in a vial to a actual jab. And we didn't invest as much as we could have to support states in this enormous, never before done infrastructure feat of setting up testing facilities setting up vaccine facilities, getting trained personnel in the books and creating even online systems that can manage the traffic of vaccine appointments and making sure that it's equitable, right? The fact that we are still experiencing a number of places where you are required to have high speed internet and or internet at all to get access to a vaccine is really problematic. Yeah. And I'm not surprised at all that we've seen a number of missteps with people jumping the line, people kind of abusing their, uh, you know, savviness or kind of doing things that have, that have, um, taken the spot of other people those things are not surprising. Now I will say, you know, I wish we were vaccinating more. I wish we were vaccinating faster. But we've also, when it comes to kind of the goals that President Biden has given, yes. we've, we've outpaced them. And that's pretty encouraging. And now we're on track. We've got about, today, I think it's about 16% of the United States is considered fully vaccinated. And they're hoping that by May, everybody should be eligible to get the vaccine. Everybody who is 16 and over, because that's what um, it's approved for. At least Pfizer's approved for 16 and over. Moderna's approved for 18 and over. California now is as of April 15th. Anybody yes. can make an appointment. And even today, President Biden said that they're expecting that 90% of Americans should have a vaccine center within five miles of their home. Wow. Um, now, 90% is not 100%. And right. I want to recognize that that 10% of people who won't have that is part of a thing in public health that we call vaccine deserts. That's a very real thing. People have to travel much farther with much more like complicated uh, factors in order to get access to life-saving things like healthcare and or vaccines. And so uh, we still have a long way to go, but I feel optimistic. And I'll actually want to go on the record and say, I love that I was wrong on my predictions for this last year when people would ask me, like, when is when are we like you and me kind of people going to get vaccinated? I was like probably late summer, early fall. I love to be wrong about this. I'm so pleased that it's several months earlier because that means that hopefully our fall and our winter and especially our holidays are going to look so different than they were last year.
1: Absolutely. I know in some places, I have a lot of family and friends overseas and in Europe and in other places that they started sort of changing things around and decided that getting one shot of the two is more important than some people getting two. So what is the take on... One shot for more people, and is it? And, and I guess my question is do we have any evidence to show how effective just one shot is and at what point? Because I know for us, it's a, we know that it's two shots, and after yeah. two weeks of that second shot, we're at yeah. the most.
0: So we have some early data on that. Um, that hasn't changed the dosing protocol or no. even how it's indicated, right? It's supposed to be two full doses now. Again, I know places like Canada and other countries are experiencing shortages where they are trying to get more people vaccinated with at least one dose before they can get people fully vaccinated and ex- extending that, it's it's complicated, right? It's, it's not an ideal situation. I would love for more people to be fully vaccinated, but there is encouraging data that shows that one dose provides, I think Pfizer provides around 80% protection and Moderna is somewhere close to that. Now, that doesn't mean you only need one shot, right? The two-dose vaccine protocol is to do what we were telling you, what we were talking about earlier, which is to prime, of introduce your body to it and then boost and make sure that you have that robust long term, those 90 plus percent kind of efficacy endpoints. And, uh, I don't think that the the protocol is going to change in that regard. I know that they've also explored the idea of people who have been previously infected only needing one dose Mm -hmm. because the infection kind of functions like the prime. And then the first dose functions like the boost, but it hasn't changed the fact that Pfizer and Moderna to be considered fully vaccinated requires two full doses. So I think that some people in some places, especially like Canada, can rest easy knowing that having a delay between dose one and two is not going to be the end of the world. In the US, the grace period is 42 days between the doses. In places like Canada, I've heard it's it's several weeks.
1: And that uh, grace period, does that, have they shown give you the same amount of immunity as if you were to get it in that three weeks or that is the weeks. assumption.
0: That is okay. the assumption. Yeah.
1: And going forward, do we know if this does become sort of an annual booster shot or something? Is it going to be again, two shots or will it be one shot? Do we think?
0: That's a great we question. We, we just don't know yet. Um, they, a lot of the manufacturers are working very fast right now to develop boosters, which will provide that kind of extended coverage for the variants. We don't know if Moderna will be like a third dose, Pfizer-Moderna will be like a third dose of the previous vaccine, or if it'll be like a booster, which covers the variants for those. I have Mm -hmm. seen some pretty exciting uh, protocols written up to have universal boosters, meaning it doesn't require, doesn't matter which one that you got for your initial vaccine that the booster can be universal. So time will tell. We'll know probably later this year what annual and or booster dosing will look like.
1: Okay. And for people that had a really strong reaction to the second shot, let's say of one of those that, you know, of course it means that your immune system's working. It's nothing Mm -hmm. scary or bad, but people that had like a pretty, you know, bad 24 to 36 hours or so, can they expect that to continuously happen every year if this does become a booster or do they start to get better with vaccines that are not better, but do they start to... Does your immune response,
0: or I guess it's like a weird question, but. No, it's a fair question. What we call reactogenicity, which is the side effects to medication or vaccines, varies a lot. And I I still get people, no matter how many times I've debunked this, who are super stressed out about like, I felt fine. Is it not working? Or I should have felt worse. This was my second dose and I felt fine. (laughs) It varies so much from person to person. There have been some years where I get the flu vaccine and I'm like, ah, oh, sore arm. There have been some years where I get the flu vaccine. I'm like, I actually feel kind of like I have a yeah. little bit of a fever. So it just varies. It, it depends on a lot of factors. Uh, it would be impossible to predict that a booster or an annual vaccine would be a different response because, again, you know, it, it just varies so much.
1: Some of the things I've been hearing are people saying, "Oh." which obviously all the things people are saying should all be taken with a grain of salt until you really investigate them. But I've been hearing, oh, if you had a really strong reaction to the vaccine, it meant that you had been infected with COVID before.
0: Maybe, maybe not. It could could mean that, because like people who had a known infection get an extra, you know, rough time with the vaccine because it is their body being like, I have seen this before and fights even harder. But again, if you didn't have a confirmed infection, speculating about that doesn't really give you any much, any more information. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't change anything.
1: I know that there was a lot of back and forth about people that were ill. I mean, I was someone that was, I was more sick than I've ever been before in early February of last year, like I was really sick. I didn't have a fever or anything, but I had a cough and a cold that lasted like over a month and a half or two months. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are like, Oh, well, it could like, do we know exactly? I know I've read some articles on like when we believe COVID, you know, came to various places here in the United States, but is there, is that sort of a thing that
0: it was a possibility or is that like, no, Yeah. Well, this is one of the many consequences of not having enough genomic sequencing, right? Because if we were doing it, we could determine the family tree, the kind of true index case. But right now it doesn't seem possible that there were cases kind of earlier than December, 2019 in the U S it doesn't seem possible, or at least kind of based on any evidence right now. Now, again, you may have had it. You may not have had it. Your, your antibodies may have already faded. So getting an antibody test to determine what happened last February is not really going to tell you anything. Again, I think the conclusion is the same. You still need to be vaccinated. And it's one of those, it doesn't matter. It's it's an annoying unknown, right? Like I think a lot of people who were sick in winter of 2019 and 2020 um, were, you know, very much want that information, but it it doesn't change the the outcomes right now. Right. A
1: couple more questions. Number one, should people still be sanitizing their groceries?
0: I have not done that since April of last year. Okay. So, here's the thing. The goal is good hand hygiene. And I also get questions which really amazes me like, do I need to wash it for 20 seconds, 30 seconds? I'm like, is that so hard? Like I I just don't understand like why is hand hygiene like such a also, burden? Just wash also, your hands. It's so interesting and then I'm,
1: you know, someone I said that was a little more, you know, I get laughed at for you know, sanitizing the, the seat, or I'm one of those people that I have to try to work on myself. Like mentally, when I'm in a plane, if someone like coughs near me, I look at my husband and I'm like, you know, <laughs> and he's like, what, what do you want me to do? And I'm like, no, nothing. It's just like, did you hear that? You know, whatever. It's like not a big yeah. deal. And I, I have to work, check myself, you know, it's surprising to me just in general, how much like, or sorry, how little just general hand-washing.
0: Oh, people were so doing. gross. It's so <laughs> gross. Like, I, it, it's very revealing how little people wash their hands. And-, and
1: not to be judgmental out there of anyone, but like, even for yourself, like, I was, I, even what I'm saying is, I'm someone that is like, more on edge about these things. And I was certainly yeah. not washing my hands as much as I am right now. And after certain things that like, you know, every time I like, every time I went out or touched something, I just wasn't washing my hands as much. And I yeah. know that because my hands are extremely dry
0: now and they were never before. So I yeah. must not have yeah. been washing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Man, I feel like if people panicked less about the things that are very low risk, it would also make this a little bit more bearable. Right. I think, yes. you know, there's so much misinformation out there. There's so many things to not Lo- you know, waste your worry on. And I think one of those is like, you know, groceries. People are still really concerned about like your hair and your clothes. Like those are just not the main drivers of infection. It's really close contact with an infected person.
1: Okay. So last question with this is perfect segue into it for a fully vaccinated person. And then we're going to do it for unvaccinated and maybe this will be the same, but for a fully vaccinated person, what is the most risky type of behavior that they can do?
0: It's being unmasked and in close contact indoors with people who are unvaccinated.
1: Okay. And for an unvaccinated person, is it the exact same same
0: thing? thing. It's the same thing. And I kind of love how that panned out because those are considered high-risk behaviors regardless of vaccination status.
1: Okay. So unmasked indoors um, with people that are unvaccinated. And you have to obviously assume that you know nothing about someone's vaccination status unless they are in your home or, you know, you see their card. So you don't, so basically unmasked and indoors.
0: Which is why the CDC was very precise in saying that these indoor gatherings that can happen unmasked are in private settings. It's like between the couple households. It's not in public and it's also not in workplaces. I think a lot of people are feeling the put the pressure yes. of like okay, well what this is mean for work? The CDC made it very clear that this is not applied to workplaces because workplaces one right now are not required to mandate it and or like you don't know all the variables in that workplace because it's also multiple people with households outside of the office.
1: Do you think we're heading to, and I promise this is my last question. (laughs) Do you think we're heading to a sort of offices may start requiring um, proof of vaccination or traveling? And I've seen certain things about like sort of vaccination passports. Is that somewhere we may be headed? It's a
0: complicated topic. I will start by saying that vaccine passports are not a new thing, you know, like we have, if you've traveled to Southeast Asia, or if you've traveled to Sub-Saharan Africa, you have to present what we call a yellow card for proof of vaccination for yellow fever. So that concept has existed. Um, Also, if you have children, or if you, you know, remember from the past, like a pediatric vaccine schedule is required for entry into school. So like we have systems already in place that require You know this kind of public health behavior to do X kind of activity. Um, That said, I don't anticipate it being mandated under emergency use authorization. And I don't know what it will look like once it's fully approved, because again, we don't know if it's going to become like an annual vaccine or not. I think there are a lot of equity issues and nuance that is missing in the conversation of vaccine passports, especially when we think about how diverse communities are in the U.S. and the different kinds of access and employment situations that are available to people.
1: Okay. Well, thank you so much for being with me here and um, answering all my millions of questions. <laughs> I think this is going to be really helpful for so many people and possibly we could follow it up when the episode airs with a short live or something that people yeah. are able to ask questions. I think it's so important right now just to, we. I, I talk about it a lot, but just to make sure that you're aware of the information that you're getting and receiving yeah. and spending your energy on and it doesn't mean that you you know anyone's trying to tell you exactly what to do or one way's right one way's not but like investigate it really yeah. actually take the time to investigate it and figure out who your who your sources are i think yeah. that's really important and that's important for life in general but especially right now if there's one parting statement that you can make to people that are apprehensive about the vaccine, just one thing that you can kind of say to, to help them out. They're on the fence. And I know that I I see on your Instagram, tons of people reach out to you and say, Hey, I was on the fence or this was my first Mm -hmm. vaccination ever. And you know, it's after following you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, You know, I'll say a couple of things. One that we're in this together and that vaccines also are something that we do together for each other. And that, you know, a vaccine is essentially one of the ways that we're going to get back to normal. And it's our, it's our ticket back. It's like a freedom pass, right? It's we're getting back to hugs and, uh, you know, limitations being reduced from our lives. And um, I say with full confidence that, you know, with no bias based on any kind of like people make assumptions about my payments and all that stuff. And I've never been paid by any of these companies to say any of these things um, that these are safe and effective vaccines and you can trust the data I'll also say that the sacrifices that people have made to survive this are not in vain, that every decision we make to get vaccinated or to wear a mask or to practice physical distancing or to delay a celebration or even, a, you know, an event that is maybe even sad, like a funeral. Yes. Um, those are all choices that we're making that help. And, you know, the trauma compounded, I think will be something we'll be dealing with for many, many years but it's not lost. It's not in vain. It's not for nothing. When
1: the vaccine is available to your children, would you be having your children vaccinated?
0: Absolutely. Because I know that when it becomes available, it's based on rigorous testing. And if it's safe and effective based on the data, then I will absolutely vaccinate my kids.
1: Thank you so much. This was amazing. The last thing we do on looking up here is I get to pull a card for you from my things are looking up optimism deck of cards. Nice. Um, each one has a science-based or holistic prompter suggestion that actually increases resiliency. Here's yours. Name just one thing that makes you proud of yourself. Anything that comes to mind, even if it doesn't seem like it, you are accomplishing so much every single day and truly have so many things to choose from. Just pick one.
0: I am really proud of stepping out of my comfort zone and doing things like podcasts and front facing videos on Instagram and putting myself out there. I've literally, literally never taken a selfie before 2020 because I I never shared a selfie. And the fact that like I put myself out there, um, which is something I thought I'd never do and how well received it has been, has been really uh, encouraging to me.
1: I love that. Thank you so much for doing the work that you do. And we're so thankful to you for getting out of that comfort zone and I guess making a bigger comfort zone, expanding it because we need yeah. we need your words. We need your expertise and all the information. Um, please follow uh, Jessica on Instagram. We'll obviously have that linked because it's just a great place to get valid information, which right now knowledge is power. And I think that a really great way to decrease anxiety and go through this together is, is actually to get valid information and find out what's really happening with the pandemic. Yeah, so yeah.
0: thank you. Thanks for having me. This was so great.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info and how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up optimism deck of cards, head to ThingsAreLookingUp.com. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Our theme music is Me and Shaw Day by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.